Good morning. So thank you for the opportunity to be able to preach. I do, uh, I know some familiar faces from your church uh, through Union, through the community. I see several Cross Life people here. So thank you all for this opportunity. Um, it is incredibly intimidating um, to go preach at another church for me. I'm actually an introvert. I'm not someone who likes to be in front of people. Um, I'm, I love working behind the scenes, um, which is really ironic because God continues to thrust me out there. And so um, I am the pastor of Cross Life Fort Smith. We're about two and a half years old, maybe. Um, we began in our living room, uh, just about 12 people. That included kids who who wanted to just open the Word and keep things as simple as possible, keep the Word at the center, push into the Word, sing the Word, pray to God, and just enjoy fellowship with one another. And God has continued to bless that. And so um, we're growing uh, in, in our numbers, maybe, but more in our holiness. It's great to see how God continues to shape His people whenever His Word is preached. And so that's who we are. We're gospel-centered. We're Christ-exalting, a disciple-making community. That's what we strive to be. We're a Nine Marks Church also, so we're very like-minded. Um, so I did reach out to Blake about uh, nine or ten months ago, and uh, my voicemail was, you have no idea who I am, and I promise I'm not crazy, but I would love to just meet you. And, uh, and we met at Tacos for Life, and it was a good time. And uh, So anyways, uh, I pastor that church. I'm also the superintendent at Union Christian Academy, and I gladly tell everyone that that was never my design. Um, I never even wanted to be a teacher, didn't want to get into education. I thought that was the worst idea possible. Whenever I got the phone call of, from a, a principal that I did not know, he said, hey, how would you like to come teach English? And I said, that's the worst idea ever. Like, I don't want to teach. I don't want to work with kids. Um, I don't want to uh, teach English for sure, even though I had an English degree. I ended up teaching there for nine years. And then God opened a door where I taught at Southside here in town for two years. And then while I was teaching one day, I got a, a text from the principal at Union Christian Academy. They wanted to know if I wanted to come teach Bible possibly. So I went for that interview. That fell through. The school board called and said, hey, how would you like to be the principal? And I said, that's the worst idea ever. I don't want to do that. Um, and so I, have, I say all that to say, I want to live a life of obedience. And wherever God sends me and wherever God sends you, our only proper response is absolutely yes. So whenever Blake reached out to me a, a, a couple of months ago and wanted to know if I would be willing to preach, I immediately said yes. And then ever since then, the stress levels have been rising over and over and over again. And uh, I'm preparing for the sermon in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And I'm looking and I'm like, what did I get myself into? And why that? And so I'm feeling okay again because I listen to worship music on the way in. You know, it's like our fight song. And so we're getting ready to preach. And I walk in and I sit down and Brad says, hi, nice to meet you. Man, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, that's a heavy one, huh? And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Thanks for that encouragement. No pressure. Y'all, I'm excited um, to preach Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And I will tell you from the very beginning, there's absolutely no way we will be able to mine its steps. And there is no way that it's going to be sufficient in and of itself to really show you the full glory of who God in Christ is. But you know what we will do? We're going to push into his word and learn more of our beautiful Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you. And Lord, I don't pray for excellent speech today. Lord, what I pray for is to clearly communicate what your scripture has taught us. And what your scripture has taught us is that Jesus Christ is matchless. Jesus, you are preeminent. And you sit on a throne that is sovereign over all things. And you have done the work to reconcile all things to yourself. Not that everyone will be saved, though we wish they were. Your heart is that all men would be saved. But we know or that the tragic reality is that not every man and every woman will call upon your name. But Lord, those whom, whom you foreknew, Lord, those, who, those people who are yours, you have done a redemptive work and you have reconciled us to you and we will never be apart. There's great joy in that for us. And Lord, so what I pray is that not only is there joy in the work that you've done, but Lord, there is a true, genuine love for you. 
But Lord, just like our love for one another can grow cold as we grow more comfortable with one another, Lord, so we too can grow very comfortable with who you are in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that this text alone, that that you sanctify us in truth and your word is truth. So just the preaching of your word, not, Lord, having to expound on anything, but, Lord, that your word will do its work, that it will sanctify us and that it will purify us, that it will shape who we are and that it will challenge us and make us think, are you the preeminent one of our lives? Lord, it's easy to sing. Lord, it's harder to live. Lord, may we live lives of worship, our eyes fixed on you. Lord God, bless this time in your word. And Lord, may you be glorified. Amen. So there is that question, though, that I had, and that that Brad kind of brought up again this morning of, basically, my question as I was reviewing everything last night was, why? Why did I pick Colossians 1, 15 through 23? And, And whenever... Whenever Blake reached out to me of, of everything I could have preached, I mean, John three sixteen, that would have been like low-hanging fruit right there for this church. You know, I, I could have done it, and then it was Colossians 1, 15 through 23. It was the immediate response. And it's a fair question, and it's simply this, because I may have only one chance to talk to you. <laughs> this may be it. Blake's right here. This might be my one opportunity to ever preach to you in this context. And I have one message that I want to spend my whole life proclaiming. And that is that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is completely other than anything else in this world or anyone else that will ever be in this world. He is matchless. And I want to spend my life proclaiming that message. There's also something in Psalm 50 that resonates with me. And and you attend Blake's church, so I know you have them. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50. So before we ever touch Colossians... Let's go to Psalm 50, because in Psalm 50, verse 21, God's word has some very apt and chilling words. And in Psalm 50, verse 21, and we're going to read the whole thing, but in Psalm 50, verse 21, God says, you thought that I was one like yourself. And those words haunt me, to be quite honest. Whenever God speaks and he's speaking to his people and he says, you thought I was just like you. And it's a very chilling, very apt phrasing where he's basically saying, I'm not like you at all. And that resonates with me. Whenever that resonates with me, I automatically got to go back to Colossians 1, 15 through 23, where God shows us through his word that Christ is not like us or anything else in all of creation. But let's put 21, verse 21 of Psalm 50 in context. So Psalm 50, verse 21, and I'm in the ESV. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. He says, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is a judge. Selah. He says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am, your, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. 
You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And that's why Colossians 1, 15 through 23 for me. Because there are those who love the Lord and they want to see him high and holy and lifted up. But there is a world that does not. And you and I live in a culture that has cultivated this image of Christ, which is completely unbiblical. And so I have one shot at least to tell you and show you one very clear passage of who our Christ is. And what a perfect time that we do this at Christmas whenever we talk about Christ coming in the flesh, the incarnate one. And we focus on the cradle and then we're going to focus on the cross. I echo what Blake said that every message that any church preaches should always be a message of Christmas and Easter. It should not be a seasonal message. It is the unending thing that we proclaim, the gospel every day. Jerry Bridges says it's not just what saves us, it's what sustains us. So you and I, may we never grow old to the things of Christ. We'll grow used to the gospel. We'll, we'll learn the language. But may it never become just old hat to us. Where we're like, what's well, the gospel? This is where I get to start tuning out. That's Jesus. I know Jesus. I've walked with Jesus for decades. I'm just in a valley right now, but I know who Christ is. And every time I go back to Colossians and I look at the American church, I wonder, do we really? My fear, Chaffee Crossing and, and Cross Life, is that we've lost our reverence of a high God and a high Jesus. We become so familiar, then we've made God so comfortable to us that he could walk into this room, he could sit right there, and we would be completely unmoved by who he is. Yes, he was a friend of sinners. Yes, he came to be like us. But he was in his very nature always like God. Our unholiness in his presence should make us uncomfortable. We do have a friend in Jesus. But he spent his blood to make it so. What the church needs is a renewed vision of a holy, majestic, and mighty God who is unlike us. On the screen it says, that, that, or, or the title of the sermon was The Preeminent Christ, but you're going to hear me today say over and over, The Matchless One. He is unmatched by anything else in all of existence. And so now here we go. We are in Colossians. So turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. And here's what God's word says. He, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray one more time. Lord, your word open before us. Lord, help us to understand what we could not understand on our own. May your spirit do a work in us so that deep crying out to deep, we can grasp these words a little bit more 
and worship you more truly. But Lord, may your word wash us and may it encourage us. Lord, as I read these words, I'm uplifted and I'm encouraged because the God that's described, the Jesus who, who came in the cradle and who died on the cross, that is the Jesus who's being proclaimed here and lifted high. Lord, that, this is my God right here, my Jesus right here. I am encouraged and excited. But Lord, I don't want to be a great speaker. I just want to be a faithful preacher of your word. So Lord, if that means I stumble and stutter, that's fine. Lord, if the eloquence is gone, that's fine. But may your word and may you be known. Lord, be with us as we are shaped by your word in this moment. And help us, Lord, to focus. Amen. So I want to explain a little bit how, how I preach. I believe it's the exact same way that Blake does. I, I believe in expository preaching. We're just going to take the words, we're going to take the verses, and we're going to move through them to understand better um, what they mean and what they say. I also have this conviction with churches and with, the, with Christians that it's a lot like a roller coaster, that we get into the Word and, man, we fly through it, and we just go way too quickly. And so the goal of today is to take this very rich verse and honestly, just slow down. It's rich enough. It's sufficient enough. And I preach shorter than Blake, so I know I have plenty of time. Okay. So really what I want us to do is, y'all, the heart of the text is that Christ is preeminent. And so really there's, there's only two points to today's sermon, but there's like seven mini sermons in each one of those. But we're gonna, we really just want to take each one of these verses and just kind of look at those. But we're going to keep moving past them as well. And here's what all of this says. The first main point, if you need to know anything, what's the thrust of this whole passage? Jesus Christ is the matchless one. And then he's going to show us over and over and over again how that is. And so we're in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's where it all starts. That he's the image of the invisible God. You know, we are made in the image of God. That's what Genesis tells us. We're made in the image of God. But it tells us right here that Christ isn't just made in the image of God. He is the very image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. This is really cool. I, by the way, I have a master's in English. Um, so I love words. I love um, meaning and finding the context of sentences. That's just um, how I'm weirdly made, fearfully and wonderfully made to like English and reading and context. But so Hebrews 1.3 is just really cool to me. If you actually want to hold your place there and flip to Hebrews 1.3. And since I hear pages, I'll, I'll, I'll wait on you. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, that he, Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God. That's who Jesus is. So I think of, of Revelation 4, and, and you're familiar with that great throne room scene probably where where John is caught up into the spirit and he's in the great throne room and he, he sees the crystal sea, he sees the elders falling down and he sees one who is seated upon the throne and the one who is seated upon the throne has the appearance of, Casper, of Jasper and Carnelian and of these precious stones and he's very resplendent and radiant in glory and that's what I think of as the glory of God. But Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus isn't just the glory of God, He's the radiance of the glory. So there's the glory of God, but Jesus is the radiance of that glory. It's like glory upon glory, glory, glory. That's who Jesus is. And he's the exact imprint of God's nature. So he came like us. You've heard that preach. He took on flesh. The word dwelt amongst us. So he took on flesh. He was like us, but his very nature was like God's. It tells us in John 14, 9, Jesus is speaking. He says that anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
I honestly think that we lose that in our culture today. I'm not saying a Chaffee Crossing. I'm not saying a cross life, but I'm saying in the Christian life, I think we lose the impact uh, to know Jesus is to know the Father. He was the exact imprint of his nature. You know, if, if Christ were to walk into this room today, the Christ that culture has created, he's very comfortable. We'd shake his hand. We'd clap him on the back. We'd tell him to make sure he wears his mask. Absolutely, COVID. Right, we're going to follow all guidelines. But if we were truly in that moment and we saw Christ and understood Christ for who he truly was, then we would know that to speak to this man would be to know the Father. The very nature of God in the heavens who we cannot see. He is not, Christ has not only brought us home to him, but he has communicated clearly. So the God that we cannot see, we can see Christ and we can know the God who is fully spirit. We can know him through Christ. Now, what does it mean that he's the firstborn? Okay, because this is actually pretty important to know that he's the firstborn of all creation. Some would take that heretically to mean that, that he was created first, that Jesus was the one who was created, and then he created all, quote, other things. But what it really means is that he's preeminent. And to be preeminent means that you are the priority, you are the number one thing. To be the firstborn in the context of when this was written meant that he would receive all the family blessings. So if I'm the firstborn in my family, which I'm not, I'm one of seven. But in the culture to which, in which Paul was writing to the Colossians to be the firstborn meant that the firstborn of that family would receive the full inheritance. And then my firstborn, which is Jackson, and he's right over here. Jackson, raise your hand real quick. That whenever I pass on or whenever it's the family or whenever it's time, that I would bestow on him as the firstborn everything that's Massingale's basically. And that his firstborn would then receive everything that was Massingale's. And that that would continue through the firstborn. Sorry to the other two. Right, but he gets it all. Whenever it says that he was the firstborn of all creation, it doesn't mean that he was created first. It means that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then that word took on flesh. There is in the beginning of Genesis, but there is in the beginning before Genesis. And in the beginning before Genesis, Christ always existed with God. But he is the firstborn. He gets the full inheritance of all creation. Everything is his. And he walked this earth. And I know you're sitting there and you're like, Ricky, we know this. We get it. But I'm just saying, do we really? Because if we, it's one thing to say, we believe he's preeminent, but what I tend to do is that I, I tend to start, like I said, to make Christ more comfortable, to watch this where it becomes negotiable. And I begin to pursue my passions, my pleasures, my sins, rather than the preeminent one. Is he truly preeminent, not just in the text, not just in our minds, not just in the verses that we memorize, but do we live lives as though Jesus Christ is the absolute only and high one? This is actually really important because the reason that Paul wrote this was because their Gnosticism had crept into the Colossian church. And Gnosticism taught that, that the spirit is good and that flesh is bad. And that if Jesus Christ who was spirit, if he, was, if he truly was God, if he came in the flesh, then he had become corrupt, that there was no way that Jesus Christ could absolutely, absolutely be who he said he was. He was not God. He was either man or he was God. He could not be fully both. And as Paul is writing this passage that we're about to move through, Paul is saying, oh no, he's something completely other than any of your philosophy can ever grasp, could ever grasp. I think it's apt for the church in Colossae. I think it's apt for the American church today. That all of our philosophies, all of our, our mindsets, our way of trying to grapple and put Christ into a box and think fully through who he is in a way that makes sense to us is a futile attempt. So this text pushes back on that and it pushes us to verses, uh, I'm sorry, to verse 16. It says, for by him, by Christ so not only is he the image of the invisible God, not only is he preeminent, but he 
is the one that says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. John 1, 1 through 3 says this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's in the, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Y'all, the totality of that is, is all-encompassing. We don't want to miss it. The purpose of all things is this. What is the purpose for your life? What is the purpose for creation? What is the purpose of the cosmos? What is the purpose of the depths of the oceans that we have not even begun to touch? What is the purpose of all things? Him. It's exactly what scripture teaches. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So many things that we cannot even see in his creation. And it goes on, all things were created through him and for him. The purpose of your life, which everybody is searching for, is him. The problem is we just don't like the answer there. It's too nebulous. We want something we can grasp. We want to know, what do we do in this life right now? God, what did you create me for? He created you for himself and for his glory. That's it. We complicate things because we don't like the simple, plain thing that the creator God made a people whom he would redeem for his glory. We want to exchange the glory of God for the glory of ourselves. So what is the purpose of what I do that fulfills me every single day? Y'all, we are dealing with mud pies whenever he's created a feast for us. That's what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says that we are so satisfied eating mud pies in the yard because we forget that there is a banqueting feast inside. We are too easily satisfied. Y'all just like, just, I'm a simple guy. I really am a very simple guy. Think about all of creation that you absolutely take for granted. I mean, I'm amazed by the cosmos. I'm amazed. I like to find those articles. I'm not going to lie. Okay. I like to find those articles where they think they found alien life on this planet right out there. There's just something that kind of draws me, not because I think that there's going to be alien life, but because I'm amazed by the planets that they find. We haven't reached the expanse of space. And every planet that I see Makes me go, wow. And whenever they find these stars and they begin to describe them, God breathed out stars and calls them by name. And then you go home and if you have little kids, they come in and they have dirt all over their hands. And the dirt, everything was created for his glory. The worms, I don't understand that one, but worms created for his glory. There's the depths of the ocean and there are, there are particles of sand down there. You understand, like, they're created for his glory. Everything created for his glory. I look to the cosmos again and, and they're finding not only planets, but they're finding mysteries where they're watching two black holes collide. I'm like, he created that for his glory. Everything created by him, through him, and yet for him. So Jesus was active in creation. That's what, what John and, and Colossians tells us. But he wasn't just active in creation. He was actively creating for himself. So the next time you see that really weird, funky creature and you're like, that's just weird. Somehow, for some reason, God thought it was good to create that for his glory. I don't understand it. I don't know why spiders. One day, maybe, maybe in a redeemed creation, I'll understand that the spider has a really good, please don't come up afterwards and say, you know, spiders are actually good. Okay, they're not. They're just, they're not. Okay. But everything created for him. Not for you and for me. It's what we do with sin. We take what he created and we begin to twist it. And we use it for our pleasure. And whenever we use it for our pleasure, then we're also focusing on our purpose. We're way too easily satisfied. It says, and, in, and he is before all things, which is just a, so simple. Right, he is preeminent. But I just want to ask you, do you really see Jesus in that way? Like, did you wake up this morning with your thoughts on Christ? Right now, hopefully our thoughts are on Christ. But you and I both know that, that there's going to be a great attempt at thievery as soon as we close the word and as soon as we leave this place today, as soon as we're walking out, 
then Satan will begin to try to steal those high concepts of God. And he's going to pull us back to this earth as much as he possibly can. But you might say, yes, he's preeminent. He's matchless. We get it, Ricky. Okay, is he more important than your spouse? Don't, don't shake heads and nods. You don't have to do any of that, but you can. Is he more important than your children? And what about more than your own life? More than your own job? Like, would you be willing to say that even if you slay me, God, still I will praise you? That Jesus, you are so much more important to me that should I lose my spouse and children, I will still be held firm because of who you are. We know it in the text. We know it in our heads. Do we truly, fully know it? I'm telling you, I don't. I've had long conversations with God where I've said, God, if you take them, I don't know what I would be. And you know what that is? It's a challenge to my idolatry because of good things that he's blessed me with. I make God things. Warren Wearsby, I like how he says it. I like Wearsby. He sometimes just puts it in such a great, simple way for me. When Adam and Eve first sinned, he says, humanity declared war on God, but he didn't declare war on them. It's one of those things where as much as I'm uncomfortable getting up in front of people and speaking and, and preaching, I really enjoy being able to just pause and, and focus on the text more and more, and I'm very thankful that God allows that. But when Adam and Eve first sent, humanity declared war on God, and I had to sit there and think of that. But God was, was no longer the delight of their lives. He's no longer the reason that they were moving. They were seeking their own pleasure. They became in and of themselves the primary importance of, of whatever they wanted. Humanity declared war on God. They exchanged his glory for their satisfaction. And what he did rather than declare war on them and absolutely destroy them is that he would clothe himself in humility. And rather than destroying them, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3, instead what he said is, I will send you an offspring and he will destroy death for you. So he's before all things. Everything serves him. It says in him, all things hold together. So y'all, this is, this is something that makes me kind of step back. He holds all things together. All right, so he's preeminent. He's the firstborn. He created all things. He created them for himself. They were created by him, through him, for him. And he holds all things together. That's how important Jesus Christ is. That should he simply say the word, everything unravels. And I don't just mean that chaos ensues immediately. I mean things cease to exist. Whenever he decides he doesn't want to hold all things together. Should he ever decide that, then all things fall apart. But here's what amazes me. That even as he hung on the cross, he held all things together. Even as he was beaten and bloodied and marred and his flesh ripped, he held all things together. All authority his, all power his, upholding everything by the power of his word. One word could have stopped everything. He's that powerful and preeminent. And yet, sometimes we live our lives going, sorry, Jesus, I just want to follow you a little bit more. I'm, I'm trying, Jesus. And I'm telling you, I get it. We grow weary, we grow weak. But really the reason that we grow weary and weak is because we have such a weak view of Christ. He is immaculate. He is mighty. He is powerful. And, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So now the text shifts now from a universal uh, identity, a universal description of Christ, and it really moves into the redemptive scope of Christ. Because talking about how he created all things and everything serves him and, and he upholds everything. And now it's going to move more into the believer's lives. Okay, so notice that shift here. 
He's not only the preeminent Lord of creation, he is the head of the body of the church. He's preeminent Lord of salvation. So just keep pushing with me. What, what this verse might help us with is in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, it talks about how the, the people, the church, the people are the church and that the church is a body. It's an organism that's moving and that's thriving and interacting with one another. But Christ is the head of that body. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, You are the body of Christ, individually members of it, but what you need to know is that Christ is the head of this church. Blake is not. Nor am I, nor is any other pastor or leader. And, and the sad thing is, is in our churches, in many pastors and denominations have made that claim that this is their church and that, that they have the corner on the market, that they know how the church should move and how it should function. And sometimes, quite a bit of times, that gets completely divorced from what Scripture actually says the church should actually be and do and what they should admire and love. So God in his great wisdom has placed Christ so sovereignly to be the appointed head of the church universal and every expression of it locally. So pastors need to be paying attention to that. But I'm just going to say this. If he is in fact the head of the church, can we not sit a little longer and sing a little louder? I mean, if he is abs- if this Christ that, that Paul is upholding right here, if this is who is actually the head of this church, then may we sing unending praises to him. Something that I do whenever I get nervous, and you can't all do this or you're going to disappoint Blake. It's something I do whenever I get nervous or overwhelmed or whenever, honestly, I'm just kind of feeling in that funk because let's just get real, it's going to happen. I don't care how holy a saint you might be, you will go through valleys. There will be dark days that come upon you that you have absolutely no explanation for, but you do know this, that you don't tread the valleys alone because the shepherd never leaves us. So even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for he is with us and upholds us and sustains us. I'm going there with this. Is that even when I don't always feel the presence of God. And even when I'm nervous and I'm worried, sometimes what I found works so great is what I did just a moment ago. I quit singing, which I know sounds completely unscriptural, right? But here's why. Because it's encouraging to hear the saints sing. And so what helped me earlier is I'm trying to wrap my head around this and as I did stop singing for just a moment, to hear the saints sing to our high God. And it's just a glimpse of what heaven will sound like. If there's a hundred people singing and it sounds that beautiful and that encouraging, then how much more so whenever all of heaven and all of creation, everything in the earth, above the earth, under the earth, whenever everything is singing praise to his name. So sometimes it is good to just take that pause and hear the saints sing. But if you all do it at the same time, then it will be quiet and awkward. Okay. Let's answer that question. If he's the head of the church, then who or what is the church? And, and we probably know this, but y'all, it's the gathering of God's redeemed people who've been washed by his blood. Wherever we gather, we are the church. Wherever we go, we are the church. And he's the head. Every nation, every tongue, every time, every tribe, all his church. Okay, so now take that. You know that, right? You know that reality that you're with me? Yeah? Okay. So that's the reality. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, from every time, all the saints gathered. So that, this is just a glimpse of a larger church gathering that will happen in all of eternity. So every tongue, tribe, nation, everyone gathered in eternity, and there is the high priest, our Christ on the throne, and he is orchestrating and leading his church for all of eternity. He is no small Jesus, y'all. He is the high priest who came as a humble servant for us. What does it mean to say he's the firstborn from the dead? Because that's just weird. What it means is simply this. That not only in life was he preeminent, but even in death. Y'all, even death could not hold him back. When I die, I'm dead. Whenever you die, I'm sorry, you're dead. 
and after death, the judgment. But y'all, death could not even hold him back. He's not only all-powerful over the physical and the living that you and I see right now, but even in death, he is able to raise himself. No wonder the demons tremble. Who can stop a God like that? Who can stop a Jesus like that, who if we slay him, he rises again. All power is his, and even in his death, he upholds all things by the power of his word. You also get this. And it's only because of his resurrection, here's what that firstborn means, that because of his resurrection, we have ours. He's the firstborn of the resurrection, and he is leading us in triumphal procession to the throne of God. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This one blows my mind. I mean, that phrasing, for all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, does not match up to the comfortable Jesus that I have. All the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. So here's where, here's where my brain begins to go. I start to think of Isaiah 6. Remember, we put it on coffee, coffee mugs. Here I am, send me. Never mind, you, you're in Blake's church. You know the context of it probably. But, but if you say, here I am, send me, you might be going to a very fruitless ministry except that you're going to be obedient to Christ. Okay, but in Isaiah 6, there's that image where Isaiah sees the great throne room and just the train of God fills the room. And whenever they speak, the heavens tremble. I'm thinking of that, that, that fullness, that bigness, right? What would it have been like to stand in the presence of God and to hear him conversing amongst himself saying, who are we going to send? Like, so there's that image. I think of Revelation 4, which I've already alluded to, but that great throne room where there's the crystal sea and the elders are there and, and they're the, the seraphim and they're, they're monstrous almost in their description. They have eyes all over them. They have wings and they're flying and they're crying, holy, holy, holy is he. And the one who's sitting on the throne is resplendent in glory. And he looks like all these shining emeralds and gems. And it's nothing that we can really wrap our mind fully around. I'm thinking of all of that. And then whatever that God speaks, lightning peels across the sky. I'm thinking of what the, the Israelites saw whenever God enwrapped a mountain in smoke and they said, we can't go near it lest we die. And so there's this mountain wrapped in thick black smoke and thunderings. Like I'm thinking of all of that and all of that funneled in to the person of Christ and pleased to dwell. I mean, it just blows my mind. And we can sit back and we can try to make our life so much more about ourselves and our pleasures and our sin and our satisfaction whenever he says that he is the preeminent one. All of those magnificent portrayals of who God is, those, what we would call those theophanies, that's the fancy word for them, all of those find their fullness in Christ. I actually do like to read the Old Testament because I'm like, God, you appeared as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. All of that funneled into Christ. Who would willingly let himself be beaten, who would willingly let his beard be plucked, and who would bleed and die so that we could do such a foolish thing as gather here this morning to sing his praises. It's crazy that we've taken this high view of Christ We've really made it comfortable because here, watch what happens. When we make Christ comfortable, our sin becomes so much more comfortable. But if he is high and holy, then my sin before him is egregious. But if I can bring him down a little bit, then the depth of my depravity is not as far. Watch this. Not only was, was God fully pleased to dwell in him, verse 20 and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So not only was he pleased to dwell fully in Christ, but he was fully pleased that Christ would be the one fully acceptable to die for God's people and redeem them. Now look at what happens in verses 21 through 23. The matchless dies for the worthless. The one that we've been upholding and where hopefully our hearts are crying out saying, there is something so much greater than what I've been living for. 
He dies for the worthless. It says in 21 through 23, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Put that on a coffee mug. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Y'all, the matchless one died for worthless sinners. And you might be thinking, we're not worthless. We were created with dignity. We absolutely were created in his image. But in our sinful pursuits, we have made ourselves worthless before the throne. The wicked are the chaff that is driven away by the wind. The chaff, whenever you're threshing the wheat, the chaff is that dust that flies into the air and it's swept away because it's the worthless product of what's been gathered. Says very plainly in scripture, basically what worth did we have before a holy God and it wasn't anything. Instead what it says is that we were, let's start a list here, we were alienated from God. We were hostile to God. Romans says that we were sinners and enemies. Ephesians says that we were dead, followers of Satan, children of wrath. If we go to the gospels where the goats, we were the goats that God would dismiss at the judgment seat. And in Psalms, we're the chaff that the wind drives away. In all of our loudness, our arrogance, our boastfulness, our strengths, our might, our wisdom, our wealth, our resources, everything that you and I could say, but this is what I bring to the table. You have to understand that in the scope of eternity, it's absolutely worthless. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and fears the Lord. The problem is, I don't think we always know the Lord. In our greatest Christian moments, we draw near to the throne and we are captivated by who he is. But because you and I are real people, we are prone to wonder and prone to stray. And when we do, it's because we quit looking at the high throne of God. And then there's this. That even though that's what was stacked against us, Christ came to Quote, reconciling his body of flesh by his death. The matchless Lord of creation, the, the matchless God of redemption. He came for the worthless. He, is pre, who, he who is preeminent beyond all life and creation and death, he came for us. When did that cease to move us to worship? When did we cease to marvel at knowing who we truly are? I mean, you know who you are and you know who I am. You know who we were and what we were. When did we cease to marvel at the fact that the God who is beyond and better than all things would choose to become sin for us? Why? So that by his death we may be with him forever. It says we'd be holy. I'm sorry, not we will be. We are, church, holy and blameless and above reproach. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what all that means. That whenever he reconciled, he said, I am the high and holy God and you are sinners and there's a great divide. And so rather than asking us to ascend the mountain and find God at the top of the mountain. God came down the mountain to find the men to bring them home. And he is reconciling everything back to himself. It does not mean a universalist salvation where everybody's just about to get a get out of jail free card. What it does mean is that every knee will bow before him and everyone will proclaim that he is Lord. There will be those in hell. There will be those in heaven. All of creation will recognize and they will be brought under his throne, his authority, his rule. That's what it means. And you and I have been reconciled by the high Jesus. Created by him, recreated through him, and all of this for him. One more verse for you. Ephesians 2, 7. Why in the world would he do this? So that in the coming ages, church, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Chaffee Crossing, Cross Live Fort Smith, Saints Old, Saints Young. He would do all this so that in the coming ages, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We have no idea the pleasures that he is wanting to give us. The riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Not just in this moment, but look at that, in the coming ages. For all of eternity in his presence and never growing old or tired, never straying or wandering. Just fully in his presence and pressing into him for all of eternity. And I just don't believe we will ever find his depths because he's that unsearchable. But it won't be discouraging in that moment. It will be rich and will be renewed every moment for all of eternity, knowing him more and more and more. And so what do we do with this? That's the end of our text. What do we, what's the call to action? Right? What are the three steps, the three points that we need to take away from here? It's really simple. There's actually not three points. Y'all see Christ. If you're lost, if, you, if you're not a believer, you haven't called on the name of Christ and said that you are my king, then see Christ for who he truly is, not for what culture has made him. He's completely other than anything else in this creation. And he is worthy of your life. And not only that, the high king that we have talked about, Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that you could be reconciled to him for all of eternity. So if you're not a believer, then see Jesus and praise him. And if you are a believer, same application, see Jesus and praise him. That's it. Our best life right now will be found whenever we quit living it for ourselves and our pleasures and what we can do in this moment. What we need are humble hearts before a holy God and giving our lives for him. Why? Because he is preeminent and we are not. So church, remember the gospel of the holy God who was not like us but came for us and praise his holy, wonderful, mighty name in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this text. And Lord, I am sorry for whenever I lose sight of the fact that you are matchless. When you become comfortable to me, Lord, I am sorry. When I lose sight of the fact that you are the high and holy king above all things so that you hold all things together and eternity is in your hands. Lord, I am sorry. Lord, my prayer for myself is, Lord, that you forgive me of such short-sightedness and such sinful wandering. Lord, my prayer for the church that wherever we gather, Lord, would you renew hearts of worship for you Would your spirit move in such a way that people are captivated and called again to the beauty of who you are and who we are not? Lord, may we sing praise to you, the only high king, because you are worthy. And Lord, may we we see that you are so much more satisfying than any sin that this world has to offer. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you that, that you moved Paul to write it. Thank you that by your spirit you have sustained it. And thank you that it sanctifies us even today and will sanctify more believers in the future. May we not just read it though, Lord. May we heed it. And may we follow hard after you. Amen.